Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha, and thanks for joining me today. We have Audrey Bridgman joining us. Audrey, thanks for joining on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am really, really excited to chat with you today. Well, me too. But before we begin, why don't we give our listeners a bit of a background about yourself, if you wouldn't mind? Yeah, I would love that. So I'm Audrey Bridgman. I am the director of communications for Bright Kite, but I've been working for about 20 years. I have my master's degree in creative writing in English specifically, but I have a really fun and colorful work history. I spent about 10 years in the amusement amusement park and theme park world. Um, and in addition to that, doing a lot of work for national associations, shows, live shows, trade shows, virtual shows, of course, when the rest of the world pivoted. And I've had some really incredible adventures with Disney and Universal and um, really large companies outside of that, things like Bare Minerals. Uh, So I've had a really wonderful and exciting work life, and I'm continuing to have a wonderful and exciting work life here with Bright Kite. And it's just an incredible feeling to feel like the work that I'm doing as a director of communications is really going toward changing the world and making the world a better place. Um, Just focusing those efforts on advocacy has been such an incredible shift in my life. So that's like the really wide overhead view of 20 years of my life. (laughs) (laughs) condensed in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, Audrey, I really enjoy getting the opportunity to work with you through our collaborations and partnership at Brightkite. I also though have found it very intriguing to learn about your, your history, as you were mentioning with um, Disney and Universal, mostly also because I think it came up due to the fact that I live here near Orlando, but Am I correct in recalling that you went viral or semi-viral? I want to hear more about that. <laughs> I did. Um, well, it's interesting. We, we've we gone viral a, a few times. I've gone viral a few times in my life. But the, <laughs> the biggest one, strangely, was, you know, a million years ago, one of the local TV shows that I was working on when I lived in Orlando, um, I would occasionally fill in for correspondence. I was mainly a producer, writer, and director for a local Bright House show. And uh, we were going to Ripley's Believe It or Not and doing a behind the scenes when they were creating the life casting of um, an incredible figure called the Vampire Woman. And I did an interview with her just on a day when one of our real correspondents couldn't be there. And just over the years, it picked up steam and it has, you know, over a million views. And it's so funny to look back at those little moments in your career. And it's just, you never know, you know, what's going to take off. I've gone viral a few times, but mostly for my interview with a vampire woman. You know, yesterday or recently on Facebook, I got a comment from someone who I'm pretty sure is not familiar with the history of Behavior Babe or the work that I've done. And they just wrote Behavior Babe, question mark, that's an interesting choice. And it brought me back, like you were saying, like, really, it's interesting to take a a pause and think back, like, wait. So I was like, wait, you know, how did I, I get that name? Where did it start? And I took the opportunity to write a response to that comment and say, you know, it might kind of sound a little 
a little strange, like vampire woman gone viral uh, may sound a little odd. However, it's memorable and it's exciting and people get drawn into it. So I was like, yeah, you know, maybe it wasn't intentional, but it sure has been phenomenal. So I connect very much with you in the, in the beauty and the, of looking back, of looking back. Well, I think it's so interesting. Like going viral is a little bit like band names. Like if you hear the band name of a band who isn't famous, you think to yourself, that's kind of weird. That's sort of eccentric or out there. But when a band becomes famous and they have an odd or unusual name to you, it just sort of sounds like, oh yeah, that just, that just is what it is. You kind of accept it and going viral and having an online identity. It's sort of like that in the sense that you don't really choose it. It chooses you like whatever is going to take off takes off. And it's just important to run with it and go, yeah, that's my name. That's what I go by. And here's the information that I'm offering. (laughs) It is a lot like band names. It is, you know, I'll even go, I'll I'll say, I think of it too, as when, um, let's say a friend of yours or a family member tells you they're going to uh, name their, their newborn, a name you've never heard before. And you're like, oh, that sounds you know, different, or I'm having a difficult time picturing it. And as soon as there's a name and and a human to go with it, it's like, oh, that's always been their name. That makes perfect sense to me. Uh, I kind of had that experience as well. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's like if, if the Beatles had been like a high school band down the street and be like the Beatles, that's a weird name. Or if you had a niece who was, you know, named Contessa Francesca, you would be like, that's weird. But once it becomes just a part of your vocabulary in your life, it's just accepted. <laughs> it is. It is. This is my niece, oh. Contessa Francesca. Contessa Francesca. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining today. I'm really excited, like I said, to be partnering and working with you and the incredible team at Bright Kite. And I was hoping that we could take some time to share with uh, our audience, you know, really what we cover in our first, I'm calling it the first project that we're doing together because it's just the beginning of, I think, something beyond incredible. But talking about why the value, why the need, and why it came to be. And actually, it was it was something that was of interest before I got connected with Bright Kite. And so I'm so grateful to jump in and further develop this with you. What is what has this process been like for you? You're not a behavior analyst. You've been working with me on going back and forth in the terminology. I'm curious from your perspective, like, is it making sense? Well, it's been really interesting because it is making sense. And so if it can make sense, if if these really high and complicated concepts can make sense to someone like me who, you know, lives in the world of communications and storytelling, if if I can understand this entire world of behavior analysis, not saying I understand everything, but, but if I can get my head around these concepts and really start to understand them, then that tells me it's going to be even more translatable to people who are already experts in their field, to people who are already BCBAs. The experience for me of diving into this material specifically around treatment planning has been fascinating and exciting because, you know, I think as members of the public, as laymen, there's so much my entire life that I haven't understood about insurance specifically. It's always felt like this mystery and a frustrating mystery on top of that. And you wonder, well, what gets approved and what doesn't and why, and how does this work? And, and so diving into this 
has given me an understanding and a compassion for people who are entering this world, entering the autism space from all different angles, whether it's a family trying to get treatment or a practitioner trying to get treatment approved, just understanding the process of how that unfolds has been so fascinating to me. So yeah, I definitely understand it. It's definitely making sense. Well, I appreciate that feedback. And I have found that through our partnership in particular, it stretches me to to break it down, to further explain, to to find additional resources. As we're talking, we're always you know looking it up and going, oh, here's another thing that we just found. But I'm wondering if perhaps the connection is the storytelling, because in the course and just and actually in pretty much all of my presentations, it's a lot of storytelling. The story of how we uh, came to get autism insurance covered in all 50 states the story of where age caps and dollar caps were being imposed initially, right? There are stories and it's important. And I really appreciate you emphasizing uh, the development of some additional, you know, just, just the compassionate lens as well, because these are people's lives. And so, yeah, treatment plans, they're long and they're frustrating sometimes to, to complete or they're comprehensive and therefore time consuming, and when we recognize that this is really the, the entry point or the gateway in many ways for people to access services, we realize the gravity and the weight of it. Something that I've recently come to appreciate is what I've learned through advocating for uh, individuals who receive autism services and what I've learned through navigating with health insurances and health plans. I was not self-applying to my own health insurance and health plans with some current medical concerns. And so it actually was uh, some friends of mine who happened to be in the autism uh, legal field who said, Amanda, think about parity. Think about these, these laws that you know. Think about how they pertain to you. And I have to say, I had two feelings. One was I felt really silly that I hadn't thought to apply it to myself. And the other part was I felt really empowered because I was like, oh, wait, I know this for those who we advocate for. And now I can also advocate for myself. Yeah, that's really, that's really powerful. And it kind of speaks to that sense of mystery that I was talking about, where when it, when it comes to ourselves and doctors and insurance, we have been sort of trained, I mean, almost by accident to think of that process as mystifying and as well, I guess I just have to sit here and wait. And I I do think it's really powerful when you talk about storytelling, not only in the broader sense of the industry and history of the industry, because it's changing so quickly, right? And it's important that as an industry, everybody understands what has happened in the past, what just happened, what does that mean for me personally? But also, as you are saying, telling the story of of individual families and of individual clients and how to do that. It's like, I think we all understand storytelling as a concept and practitioners, maybe even I've seen them get a little bit nervous or a little bit fearful because it's like, look, I've, I've spent my life becoming a practitioner and I learned how to do things the way I was supposed to do things. And now you're asking me to get my head around storytelling. Like that's, 
Like yeah. it, it can feel overwhelming. Right. But it's like, but wait, there are ways to tell that story that we're not going to ask you to become an expert. You know, we're not going to ask you to like pull up a chair and become entertaining all of a sudden, but working with you and hearing the way that you make recommendations for here's how you get this story across. Here's how you make this point. There are so many ways to create these salient points in treatment plans and, and even ways to speak about it in peer-to-peer reviews that you're connecting dots, you're making things clear. And it's, it's things they already know how to do. They just may not realize they already know how to do that. And they just need to, they need to know the how. And I think that's where you come in. You mentioned peer-to-peer reviews. And one of the first thing I think about is the first time I sat in on them, I mean, I wasn't exactly sure what to expect. And the more that I hear from people and what their experiences are, the more of a broader picture I I think I can see and perhaps some patterns we're seeing as a larger community for sure. And yeah, we've been taught to be objective, to be prescriptive, to be very precise and technical and scientific, analytical. But as I've shared with you and, and, and others who've joined our classes and conversations, I have had a peer reviewer tell me, you know, quite frankly, I don't read anything past the second page. Yeah. And that's horrifying. And they absolutely are required to be reading the full treatment plans. However, with that information, what can we pivot? What can we adjust as the authors of these treatment plans? And where does the story fit? I think for many people, that story fits at the very beginning, on the very first page. All the demographic background information is in those little boxes and charts, the age, the client member number, so forth, understood. And then even if it's just one paragraph, paint the picture, tell the story, let the reviewer or or the medical team who's looking at this at the health plan, let them see who it is that you are working with, that you're helping, that you're treating, and why it needs to be us as behavior analysts or our teams as behavior technicians to be the ones to intervene and to support with those challenges. That's where I truly see the story being the most helpful. It really illuminates what they're going to read in the next 15, 20, 30 pages. I think that's so powerful what you just said for two reasons. Number one, story, storytelling is diplomacy, right? And so being a diplomat means stating things clearly and right away. And that's what we are teaching people how to do at Bright Kite is take what they already know how to do and, and do it in a way that is very diplomatic and clear. And the second thing that everything you just said really speaks to is that sense of overwhelm and how it is happening on the other side of the fence as well. And, and there can be an incredible bridge built and some incredible unity reached. You know, I hear you speak a lot in our classes about explaining things in a way that is helpful during a peer review, not only helpful for you as a provider and helpful for you as, you know, you're advocating for your client, but helpful for the reviewer because it's framing things for them going forward that they're going, oh, they are having that, you know, quote, aha moment 
you know, and so it's really, I think it's very powerful that it's this idea that it's not a defense strategy. It's an enlightenment strategy when you are telling stories in a clear way and reframing your information in a way that pulls the reviewer in so that they're reading it and going, oh, I understand this. So they're fueled to finish the treatment plan. I think it's really bringing light to every side of the situation, you know, for the reviewer, for you as a practitioner, it's bringing clarity and light into all areas of the situation around treatment planning. So everyone has better understanding going forward, not just in this one review or this one treatment plan, but in all treatment plans going forward. Something we talk about definitely in the course isn't just specific to our relationships with the reviewers. It's also our relationship with the families, with other providers, collaborating with past providers or current medical team. And the common theme we talk about is building those relationships. So for anybody who is listening to this, who's like, I've been on those calls, it's felt very contentious, or I've received really ambiguous denial letters. I feel like this is, you know, a game and it's unfair. I want to validate that. That is your reality, your experience, and actually shared by many others as their truth. But it's not where I like to start with my perception of um, who's reviewing the plan, for example. I like to start with, it's an educational approach, right? Let's inform them. Let's make sure that they have the tools and the research and they're reading through the treatment plans, that they're feeling equipped and prepared. And when we see that there are further barriers like age caps or dollar caps, then we can approach that and advocate for that in a very specific way. However, it's very important as much as possible to stay cordial, to stay you know, polite and to deliver this information in a way that is compelling. So I'm not asking you when to stay monotone, but what we really, what I really want everyone to recognize, especially when they're doing their peer-to-peer calls is we do not negotiate our hours. And that seems to be a big place of confusion for analysts. And I think many times what I'm learning from talking to individuals in these situations is they see the insurer as the authority. They fear that their clients will not get anything approved or that there will be delay. And we know what happens when there's disruptions and delays. So it does feel like there's some unfair motivators at play. And many of us are being positioned to maybe negotiate or maybe to accept something lower than what we initially uh, recommended and requested. And I find many people feel the most empowered when they learn to trust their clinical judgment and to know that their medical recommendations are not negotiable. This is not a negotiation. Yeah, that's been really incredible for me to watch in classes when you talk about exactly what you just out because you can see people having that moment where they go from kind of feeling like, oh, well, I negotiated for hours and I didn't get what I originally asked for, but I got X, Y, or Z. And they're having this feeling of like triumph or victory. And then when you talk about what you just discussed, they go, wait a minute, that I can have an even bigger victory. The only real victory, which is like you just said, we do not negotiate. Like we are the clinical experts, you are the clinical experts, and your recommendations 
stand and it is not up for negotiation. And that has been really, truly a moment that we have seen people have in classes where they, where they realize that's just a new mode of thinking. It's almost like a lot of what we talk about through bright kite classes is taking people from feeling like, okay, I have option one or I have option two, I can, you know, fail or I can succeed. And then we're sort of saying, actually, there's a third option where you can succeed 100% and understand your own authority better and do it diplomatically so that you're educating everyone involved. It's like, wait, wait, there's this higher third option that people didn't even realize was there. And it's, it's cool to watch people have that moment where it clicks. In our class, we definitely embed ethics, but I think it's also for me done in a relatively non-traditional way. It's not where we say in the class, you know, 1.04 talks about X, Y, or Z. It's more of where we show places that we are perhaps being put into ethical dilemmas. And one of those is when we are air quotes negotiating hours, which is why it's very clear. I'm very clear. We do not do that. I think it's also another aha moment when people are realizing that a partial approval, you ask for 30 hours, you got approved 20, should also be viewed as a partial denial. And if we don't know that, we're not going to demand that we get that denial letter. And without that denial letter, we've removed our client's right to appeal, which to me is a very serious and real ethical dilemma that we are being forced to navigate pretty frequently. So I think it's helpful that we connect real life situations to where we might go, oh, eek, uh, 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 what, what is our role and how do we do it in a way that's delicate but effective. And sometimes it's not delicate, but we're doing it in a way that's intentional and we have awareness, I suppose, would be another way to, to conceptualize that. I think that's a really, really well said because as somebody who is fairly new to all this information, when I hear the word ethics, I think 1.06, 2.01. And you're kind of directing everyone's attention to what you just said, which is the through line that has massive ripple effects for the future of every client where it's, it's this ethical situation that behavior analysts are being placed in where it's almost like a dilemma that they may not even notice they're in because they're so busy. But like you're talking about the removal of the right to appeal via partial approvals, or as you like to call them, partial denials. And it's sort of like, if behavior analysts can can catch that now and change their mindset on that, it affects the future of their clients in such a profound way because it's about them getting all of the services and all of the treatment that they deserve for their future. Like all of these conceptual things that we discuss, behavior analysts know and understand have such real world effects on the futures of these clients. You know, what is their living situation going to be in the future? How are their communication strategies going to be affected if they get five or 10 less hours now? And what is that going to do for their treatment in the long term? And so I think it's this idea that you have where you say, sort of, you know, hey, it's important to learn this now and kind of buckle down philosophically now on how you do treatment plans so that you're not 
losing little bits and pieces that will profoundly affect the client's future. I kind of just repeated what you just said, but I just, it's, it's interesting when you understand the ripple effect. Yeah, the ripple effect. Absolutely. You know, my dear friend uh, and fellow autism advocate, the late Feta Amalidi is quoted as saying, anything but a yes is a no. And if we can keep that absoluteness in our minds as we are having these conversations, unless the reviewer says something that significantly changes your clinical conceptualization, we don't change our hours at the request of the reviewer. Anything but a yes is a no. And I just love the, not the simplicity, but the the strength of that statement. And I also want to connect what you were saying about this, this responsibility, this impact. When we are holding ourselves accountable and we are moving forward and doing things in a way that's consistent as far as not backing down, not negotiating, recommending what clients need, not over-recommending because we know they're going to negotiate lower, lower. That's a problem too. However, what people may not recognize and what I really wish um, to share and, and hope the people can see is that the more we are doing this consistently um, and, and standing our ground, if you will, the more the field strengthens, the more we can say, hey, these are violations versus this is us engaged in potential violations. And when I say violations for health plans, I'm not talking about ethics, right? We're talking about violating laws. And when there are violations of laws, there are consequences to that. One of the things I've learned at the Autism Law Summit is everybody answers to somebody, and that includes the health plans. There are regulators who want to know about these patterns. But if we negotiate our hours, if we start fading down in every you know, treatment planning authorization period, then we're going to start to see these as requirements, or the, my fear is we're going to start seeing these imposed across all funders. So yeah. think about, think of, I, I think about like speech and language OTPT psychologists, they're saying it's hard to take insurance. The rates are so low. There's so much variability. We are relatively new to this landscape. I think we have an opportunity those other professions may no longer have. That's that's also pretty profound. I mean, doing things well and learning how to do things well is advocacy because it's setting industry standards. And I think... I think as you and I talk about this, you know, we, we feel so strongly about it. Like my hands are sweating right now. I'm so into this you know, it feels so important because it is. And I think every behavior analyst, I would wager, I, I can say this confidently, every behavior analyst feels that feeling. And I think feels that weight and is continuing to feel it. Like there's a lot of pressure, right? People who become behavior analysts, do so because they want to help people. But what they're missing is the how. They're thinking, I would love to do that. How? And what's beautiful is that there are so many ways and they're so practical. And it's just like muscle memory. You can pick these things up. You can pick these skills up that you maybe didn't learn during your graduate program pretty easily. Like, I know you and I see people in our classes, you know, where you go through so much material, you know, the, the treatment plan masterclass is six hours, but everything is very digestible and very easy to understand. It's the same thing with the troubleshooting class, which is three hours where 
it's sort of like people come into the class and, you know, we see everybody on zoom and they kind of look like nervous or, you know, they're feeling the pressure of this. But then as the class goes on, the vibe at the end of every class is like an exhale. Everyone's like, oh, well, this is doable. I can do this. This isn't like me starting over. This isn't me starting from scratch. This is just rearranging where my information goes on my treatment plan. And, and instead of feeling that pressure to defend themselves and make things like make their treatment plans so long, so thorough, it's sort of like you can, you can still have long, thorough treatment plans, but they will be shorter and more effective and still feel lengthy and appropriate but because you've reordered your information or because you've set it in a more succinct way, or because you've tied one thing to another thing, you know, it, it's all very doable. So you and I are talking about this because we're so passionate about it, but I want people to understand that this is something you can accomplish relatively quickly and get it into your muscle memory. And it starts changing the way you write your treatment plans immediately. And that was a long ramble, but I just it's important for people to understand that this is practical and doable. I appreciate that you're explaining to people, our passion, our passion, it does depend on who our (laughs) listeners are. For parents, we want you to understand, or for caregivers, that this is your access, this is your child's access, or or your own access, if you're a self-advocate or individual receiving the services, to services, right? If we don't get this right, then we don't get anything right. It, 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 I mean, or we don't get it all right. We we lose out on that opportunity. And as you, I think, articulated so clearly, that is a heavy weight to carry. Yeah. As a behavior analyst myself, I got into this field wanting to spend time with uh, uh, children, wanting to spend time with individuals who were asking and seeking out support, including adults I've enjoyed working with. And I didn't, I didn't join it to do the paperwork, just like teachers who are special educators don't join it for the 20 hour long IEPs, right? Mm -hmm. So it is taking that same overwhelm that's pervasive in different settings and really trying to simplify it, just as you said. And, you know, I wouldn't know the impact we were having unless people were telling us the impact we were having, or unless we were starting to see this impact that we're having. And I just have to say thank you to those who've commented, who've reached out, who've shared, who are saying what was valuable and what we could focus more on. Um, If you feel like this isn't for you or if people don't need this information, I would say "Mm, maybe maybe just double check that because each time, even though I am the instructor, I also get more and more information and a new perspective and am able to see hopefully this bigger picture, which will help all of us see the bigger picture. So although yes, you and I, you know, um, lead the course and give the information, it is so very interactive. And I have found that to be so very valuable. Um, It's, it's an ongoing process and we are revising each time or, or strengthening Um, not to say that each class before wasn't awesome. And those materials are, are useful. They are. And I think for me, one of the most useful things, if I was you know, taking the course is the treatment planning guide. So we put together the information. It's a bit more than just the PowerPoint slides themselves. <laughs> and it's, if you're feeling overwhelmed with what we give you, don't worry, because we actually give it to you to take home. Uh, absolutely. And we also update it every time. So what you're talking about, that excited energy where we'll be in the middle of a class and you'll say, oh, actually, you know, what else is a great resource is this, you know, you get 
all of those resources. We give you the URLs. We tell you where you can go and you're holding it in your hands. It's, it's a PDF you can open on your computer. It's something you could print out. You know, it's something that you can reference ad nauseum forever. And, <laughs> and it also, I think, teaches people, we're teaching people how to fish with it, right? Because that sense of overwhelm that we talk about a lot is sometimes this feeling of, I, I know that I need to look somewhere, but I don't know where to look. And I think in looking at the treatment planning guide and throughout the class and in the follow-up emails, people are realizing, oh, I, I could have Googled that. You know, it's, it's removing the barrier of the feeling of, I don't know where to look. I don't know what to do. And it's us saying, yes, you do. Here's what you do. And once you do it once, you're going to be able to do it forever. And you're going to feel so empowered because you'll think to yourself, I'm just, I'm going to look for this. Like I have all these resources in front of me, but, oh, I wonder if there's this or that. So we're teaching people how to fish, which is something they already know how to do, but they might just not be doing because of that feeling, that imaginary block of feeling, well, imaginary and actual of feeling like a lot of weight on their shoulders, but you get that into your new muscle memory and you go, I can do this. I can look for that. I can find this and that. And we, we do see them telling us and coming back to us and going, this is easier than I thought it was going to be like fixing. I don't know if that's the right word exactly, but addressing all of these fears or, or stressors that I had about writing treatment plans has been easier than carrying them around. Yes. Yes. Right. It's so much harder to avoid doing the dishes than it is to just do them. <laughs> I, I live that weekly here in my house for sure. Well, I do want to mention that we have the upcoming class, October 25th and 26th. It is, as you mentioned, two days, six hours. It is six and a half CEs, 1.5 of those being ethics. It is from 12 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, but if you can't make it or can only make a portion of it, don't worry. It's recorded. You get access on demand if you're in the course for a period of time. We want to make it easy. We want to make it accessible, and we want to see people flourish. We Take it back to your company. Tell the people you work with what you learned. This is not intended to be you know, a secret. It is intended- to synthesize the information of years of experience and years of attending things such as the Autism Law Summit and, and also experience going to peer-to-peers and having to do the denial or appeal process. And so I hope that through all of my angst um, can come something great for the field. And so Audrey, thanks for joining me, not only today, but, you know, as a partner uh, on this project, I'm, I'm really excited for our course this week. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love doing this, like out of everything I've ever done in my wild, wonderful career, this is my favorite. And I love working with you. And I can't tell listeners enough how much we love running this class, like there's energy and there's fun and there's laughs and there's help. And so thank you for letting me be a part of something that I know, like you're saying, can, can change things like share, share this information, spread it far and wide. We want to see things get better. So thank you so much. Absolutely. For anyone who's interested where they can find information about this course, you can go to brightkite.com backslash treatment plan success 
or you can also find links and access on Behavior Babe Facebook channels. And if you're interested in learning more about behavior analysis, you can also do so by going to www.behaviorbabe.com. Thank you.